The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. Today, after the headlines and my Let's Get Blunt segment about the city of Burbank's politics and pandering, you will hear my interview with the Honorable Congresswoman Katie Porter. Here are some headlines uh, as of this morning and over the weekend. Uh, an exhausted Senate narrowly approved a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill Saturday as President Joe Biden and his Democratic allies notched a victory. The huge measure, its cost is nearly one-tenth the size of the U.S. economy, is Biden's biggest early priority. It stands as his formula for addressing the deadly virus and a limping economy, twin crises that have afflicted the country for a year. The bill provides direct payments of up to $1,400 for most Americans and extends emergency unemployment benefits. $300 weekly emergency unemployment checks on top of regular state benefits will be renewed with a final payment on September 6th. You know, uh, when we took office 45 days ago, I promised the American people that help was on the way. Today, I can say we've taken one more giant step forward in delivering on that promise that help was on the way. I want to thank, start off by thanking the Vice President, but I want to thank all of the senators who worked so hard to reach a compromise to do the right thing for the American people during this crisis and voted to pass the American Rescue Plan. It obviously wasn't easy. It wasn't always pretty, but it was so desperately needed, urgently needed. Also, I also need to say a few words about the Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who I spoke with many times in this and again this morning. I served in the Senate, as you all know, for many years. I've never seen anyone work as skillfully as ably, as patiently, with determination to deliver such a consequential piece of legislation that was so urgently needed as the American Rescue Plan. Chuck Schumer, Senator Chuck Schumer, when the country needed you most, you led, Chuck, and you delivered. Neither I nor the country will ever forget that. And it's not a moment too soon. I've been talking about the urgency of this need. For, many, for over a year, the American people were told they were on their own. They were seeing uh, — we've seen how hard that has been on so many Americans. As of last night, 519,064 lives lost to the virus. That many empty chairs this morning, the breakfast table, gone. More than 400 small businesses closed unnecessarily. Millions of people out of work through no fault of their own. I want to emphasize that. Through no fault of their own. Food bank lines stretching for miles. Did any of you ever think you'd see that in America? In cities all across this country? Families facing the threat of eviction. This nation has suffered too much for much too long. And everything in this package is designed to relieve the suffering and to meet the most, most urgent needs of the nation and put us in a better position to prevail. 
starting with beating this virus and vaccinating the country. The resources of this plan will be used to expand and speed up manufacturing and distribution of vaccines so we can get every single American vaccinated sooner than later. I believe by we'll have enough by the end of by the middle of May to vaccinate. It's going to take longer to get in their arms, but that's how much vaccine we'll have. Because of all the funding, we'll be able to hire more vaccinators, set up more vaccination sites to get the country in a place to get back to normal. This plan will get checks out the door starting this month to the American people who so desperately need the help. Many of whom are lying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering, will I lose my job if I haven't already? Will I lose my insurance? Will I lose my home? Over 85 percent of American households will get direct payments of $1,400 per person. For a typical middle-class family of four, husband and wife working, making $100,000 a year total with three kids, they'll get $5,600. I mean, with two kids, we'll get $5,600, and it'll be on the way soon. That means the mortgage can get paid. That means the child can stay in community college. That means maintaining the health insurance you have. It's going to make a big difference in so many lives in this country. Unemployment benefits will be extended for 11 million Americans who've lost their jobs, who last night, again, were lying in bed thinking, my Lord, I'm going to lose my unemployment insurance in a week or so. It was about to expire. Schools are going to have the resources they need to open safely. States and local governments that have lost tens of thousands of essential workers will be, have the resources they need available to them to those laid-off police officers, firefighters, teachers, and nurses they can rehire. There are, these are essential personnel. Look, the American Rescue Plan lowers health care premiums, food and nutrition assistance. It's hard to believe that 24 million adults and 11 million children, as I speak, in the United States suffer from food insecurity. That means simply they don't have enough food to eat. Did you ever imagine in the United States of America, you'd see lines literally miles long, kids, folks in their automobiles waiting for a box of food to be put in their trunk. I stood in line handing out food. The people coming up never, ever, ever thought they'd be in that position. This helps families who are behind in their rent and their mortgage payments so they aren't thrown out of their homes. Look, the bottom line is this. This plan puts us on a path to beating the virus. This plan gives those families who are struggling the most the help and the breathing room they need to get through this moment. This plan gives small businesses in this country a fighting chance to survive. And one more thing. This plan is historic. Taken all together, this plan is going to make it possible to cut child poverty in half. Let me say it again. It's significant, historic. We'll cut child poverty in half. There's much more to this bill. But for now, let me make one final point. When I was elected, I said we were going to get the government out of the business of battling on Twitter and back in the business of delivering for the American people, of making a difference in their lives, giving everyone a chance, a fighting chance, of showing the American people that their government can work for them.
And passing the American Rescue Plan will do that. And you know, it may sound strange, but a lot of senators and congressmen I want to thank, but I really want to thank the American people for making all this possible. You say, well, how did they make it possible? Well, quite frankly, without the overwhelming bipartisan support of the American people, this would not have happened. Your elected officials heard you. Overwhelming public support. Every public opinion poll shows overwhelming support for this plan. And for the last weeks, it's shown that. Every public opinion poll shows that people want this. They believe it's needed. And they believe it's urgent. Now this bill returns to the House of Representatives, which has done a great job from the beginning, where I hope it will find quick passage so it can be sent to my desk to be signed into law. By passing the American Rescue Plan, we'll have heeded the voice of the American people, not ignored their voices. By passing this plan, we would have delivered real, tangible results for the American people and their families. And they'll be able to see and know and feel the change in their own lives. And by passing this plan, we'll have proved that this government, this democracy, can still work what has to be done. It'll improve people's lives. And one more thing. The vast majority of economists, left, right, and center, from Wall Street to the, to the private, private uh, 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 economic uh, uh, polling initiatives, the economists, as I said, left, right, and center, say, in addition to the needs the people have, we need this to grow the economy. That if we haven't spent this money and recreated the kind of incentive for people to be able to make a good living, that we'd be in real trouble. This will create millions of new jobs. It's estimated over 6 million new jobs by itself. Increase the gross domestic product by a trillion dollars. Put our nation in a position to outcompete the rest of the world because the rest of the world is moving, particularly China. And to know that as tough as this moment is, there are brighter days ahead. There really are. As I said before, it's never a good bet to bet against America. It's never been a good bet to bet against the American people. We are America. We're going to get there. We're going to remain the leading economy in the world and going to be the most successful economy in the world because of you, the American people. Thank you, and God bless you all. May God protect our troops. Thank you. They're going to be good. I'm going to succeed. We're going to succeed moving forward. Look, the American people strongly support what we're doing. That's the key here. And that's going to continue to seep down through the public, including from our Republican friends. There's a lot of Republicans that came very close. They've got a lot of pressure on them. I still haven't given up on getting their support. Thank you. The U.S. inches closer to the finish line for what has been a brutal battle against COVID-19, but it's not over yet. 
Infection numbers after weeks of declines now seem to have plateaued at high levels. The U.S. has averaged more than 60,000 COVID-19 cases daily in the past week. More than 41,000 people remain hospitalized with the virus nationwide, according to COVID Tracking Project. An average of more than 1,700 U.S. COVID-19 deaths were reported every day for the past seven days. Highly contagious variants that are already circulating have experts worried another COVID-19 spike could be just weeks away. More than 2,700 cases of variants first spotted in the UK, South Africa, and Brazil have been reported in the US, according to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. But the agency has cautioned that's not the total number of cases in the country, but rather those that have been spotted with the help of genomic sequencing. The average number of vaccine doses being administered across the U.S. per day topped 2 million for the first time on Wednesday, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A month ago, the average was about 1.3 million. President Biden set a goal for the country shortly after taking office to administer more than 1.5 million doses a day, which the nation has now comfortably exceeded. Mr. Biden has also promised to administer 100 million vaccines by his 100th day in office, which is April 30th. As of Thursday, 54 million people have received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine was authorized for emergency use on Saturday, but those doses do not appear yet in the CDC data. Republicans are gaslighting the country about the Capitol riot. GOP lawmakers are desperately trying to deflect blame away from Donald Trump and themselves. The supposed siege of the president's residence is the latest Republican deflection from the events of January 6th, when pro-Donald Trump mob, stirred up by the Republican lies about voter fraud, ransacked the U.S. Capitol. Some Republicans are compiling a growing list of distractions, excuses, and alternate theories of the day's events, hoping that as time passes, the public forgets what actually went on. Here are some of the ways that Republicans are trying to deflect the blame. The rioters were just a group of random people, uh, not united by anything. Nancy Pelosi is to blame. It was Antifada. It was fake Trump supporters. The mob wasn't even that dangerous. And finally, everybody is responsible. On Tuesday, the city of Burbank council members voted unanimously to adopt a resolution recognizing the independent Republic of Artsakh and rescinding the friendship city status of town of Hadrut. This is following Azerbaijan and Turkey's genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing against Armenians of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, which started on September 27, 2020. You can hear more about it uh, later on my Let's Get Blunt segment. Under fire for its lack of black membership, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has promised a series of steps to increase the group's diversity and responsiveness to inclusion issues. The group of journalists that present the annual Golden Globe Awards was criticized ahead of last week's ceremony after a Los Angeles Times report found that its 87 voting members contained no black people. The controversy was mentioned in the broadcast too, with co-hosts Tina Fey and Amy Poehler taking the organization to task. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. 
So today's Let's Get Blunt is about my recent experience with the city of Burbank. Now, I am grateful that city of Burbank passed a resolution to recognize the independent uh, Republic of Artsakh. Uh, it was uh, something that was very important to me, and I initiated it. But what occurred thereafter was, uh, was a little disconcerting, to say the least. Now, some of you know that I had um, petitioned the city of West Hollywood in January to recognize the Independent Republic of Artsakh with my friend Councilmember Seppi Schein, who sponsored it, and of course, Mayor Lindsay Horvath co-sponsored it, whom I know very well, and resolution passed unanimously in West Hollywood. So I was very pleased, and so I thought, since West Hollywood has recognized it, City of Los Angeles recognized it years ago, Glendale uh, did it recently. The next city that would make sense is Burbank because of its sizable Armenian-American population. So I, um, I wrote a petition, um, a formal petition, requesting city council to, um, to consider a resolution recognizing the independent Republic of Artsakh uh, with, uh, with links and articles and uh, background and uh, copies of resolutions from other cities. Now, let me go back real quick for those of you who may not know what I'm talking about or why this is important. Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, a part of uh, Armenia for millennia, was, uh, was illegally put under Azerbaijani Soviet control by Stalin in, 19, in 1921. And Ever since then, the people of Artsakh, who are Armenian, have um, strived for their independence. And in the late 80s, they finally declared themselves uh, an independent republic from the Soviet Union, even prior to Armenia or Azerbaijan. Uh, this ended in a war that, that lasted until 94, when a ceasefire was brokered. Then, this last September 27th, uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey orchestrated a very aggressive genocidal war and ethnic cleansing uh, and attacked Artsakh uh, mercilessly. As a result, over 4,000 people are dead. Uh, about just under 300 people are still prisoners of war, um, as of still today, and uh, by, in Azerbaijan, illegally. And so the, the region is vol very volatile, and it's in this constant threat by Turkey on one side with a population of 80 million, and Azerbaijan on the other side with a population of 10 million, and uh, all the oil money in the world to lobby world organizations and uh, elected officials, etc. So the importance of recognizing Artsakh as an independent republic is that it will it will have its own place in the international arena. Uh, if it's recognized by the UN. And, you know, you all know that most change happens from the local level up, and it starts in small ways. And so getting different cities to recognize it, hope is that it will collectively push for states and countries to recognize it. Uh, as of now, 11 states in the U.S. recognize Artsakh as an independent republic. And for those of you who are just tuning in, I am doing my Let's Get Blunt segment, talking about local politics, talking about city of Burbank, and uh, placating and pandering to political organizations and lobbying groups. So Burbank was uh, very important to me. I also grew up in Burbank, so that was also a very special thing. So I sent this email 
with my petition to uh, all the council members and I copied the city manager, assistant city manager, city clerk, etc. And so I I received a, a response from one of the council members, Nick Schultz, uh, and we spoke on the phone. He was very receptive and said it was a great idea and he said, you know, he was going to bring it up at the next meeting, which was on February 9th, asked me to do a follow-up email uh, just to the city manager, assistant city manager, etc., and offer my help, uh, which I already had to be uh, someone for resources, information, whatever they need. He also brought up the Armenian National Committee of America and said, oh, I wonder what they're going to think about this. Now, Armenian National Committee of America is the lobbying wing of the Armenian Relief, um, Armenian uh, Revolutionary Federation, which is sort of the Republican Party of the larger or broader Armenian community. The political organization and Armenian National Committee of America, or ANCA, is their sort of lobbying or quote-unquote advocacy organization. So he, he brought them up and wanted to see, you know, wonder what they would think about it. And I, and I told him and I said, I'm not, I don't know why ANCA has not bothered to do this on their own. Um, so this is just me as a citizen doing this uh, to make change. Um, then I thought, you know, he's a young new council member and he wants to um, just sort of like give ANCA the the respect. I kind of justified it that way. So he's just going to run it by them. And I don't, I didn't think of any reason why NCA would not support it. And I certainly didn't expect what was to happen. So the next thing I know, I was checking the city of Burbank's uh, website for their uh, meeting agenda for the February 9th meeting. And uh, noticed that the agenda was written in a way that suggested that the Armenian National Committee of America had initiated this uh, request for a resolution to recognize Artsakh. Uh, so I was surprised. So I called, I called Nick, and, and also that there was an addition to it, which was rescinding the sister city status of the city of Hadrut in what is now the Azerbaijani-occupied uh, part of Artsakh. So I called Nick, and he was sort of you know, in one of those uh, states where people sort of are caught, but then they don't want to say too much and are holding something back. So he first sort of pretended that he didn't know how Hadrut got on there and didn't want to really give too much information. And I said, you know, how come the Armenian National Committee of America is put on the agenda or noted on the agenda as the you know, suggesting that they started this petition and not me, or if, uh, you know, what, what happened here. And so he wasn't really forthright with me, and, you know, I'm very direct, and I really appreciate directness, uh, even if it's something I don't want to hear. So I get offended when I know there's half-truths coming my way. So then I contacted uh, via email, I sent an email to the, the entire city council, as well as the city manager, assistant city manager, um, city clerk, etc., um, asking them um, to correct the record um, about the fact that I was the one that initiated this. So the assistant city manager of Burbank is Judy Wilkie. And oh, by the way, when I asked Nick about 
this notation that was done wrong. He said that he was going to call the assistant city manager, Judy Wilkie, and talk to her and try to uh, correct it. And I said, great, and that I should write an email to them. So I wrote to the entire council and uh, Judy and everyone else, and I said, you know, this is, this is something that I brought to you, and I, I attached the original email that I had sent, and I don't understand why the uh, Armenian National Committee of America is notated on this, because it's erroneous. And so Judy wrote back a sort of a two-sentence answer telling me that, uh, you know, she's very sorry that I feel like my work wasn't acknowledged, etc., sort of making it personal and just sort of blowing, blowing me off in a way. And I knew that she'd already talked to Nick and nothing had happened. And so um, Nick had already expressed his uh, dislike of Ms. Wilkie, so I knew that that wasn't going to go anywhere. So I replied back to all of them and I said, but isn't the truth and accuracy important for the city of Burbank? So when confronted with this, uh, Judy suggested that she was going to call me because, of course, she didn't want any more of this on record because I was, you know, I had the facts, I had the proof, I had the receipts, if you will. Well, we spoke, and uh, basically she said that uh, the Armenian National Committee of America, upon hearing of my letter and my request, they had sent their own which is disrespectful because we're supposed to all work as a team and work well together and not uh, squash a citizen's work, a person's work. Especially in this case, I think what happened was that the Armenian National Committee of America realized that they could have done this on them for themselves a long time ago, but they didn't. They sat on it for whatever reason. And by the way, ANCA has a, a Burbank chapter as well. So they probably felt that they looked bad not having done this, and that when they saw me doing it, taking the initiative, uh, they're going to sort of like overtake this, sort of co-op it. And Judy was obviously um, placating and pandering to them. Uh, and by saying that, uh, yeah, so they sent their own letter and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and because they're an organization, we put their... Um, we put their name on there, and I said, well, <laughs> I have launched my own nonprofit organization that deals just with that, and it's called the Truth and Accountability League. That's an organization. Why don't you put that on there? Uh, she had nothing to say about that, and she said, well, with citizens, sometimes we don't put anything. I said, that's fine. You could have just said that um, someone has brought this up, and Councilmember Schultz has sponsored it, but why pandering to the Armenian National Committee of America? Now, it had been a while since I had read the Brown Act, so I had to go back and reread it and really re-familiarize myself with it. So this is definitely a violation of the Brown Act when you are pandering to a political party, because don't make no bones about it. ANCA is part of Armenian Revolutionary Federation, and that's a political party. So why the pandering? You know, it's uh, started this, and someone else is just taking it over, and you're making it convenient for them to do that. Um, I didn't appreciate that. I knew I was hearing uh, half-truths as well from Judy. So, you know, she assured me that at the meeting, the next meeting, when this was actually going to be discussed and debated, which was on March 2nd, uh, that the record will be 
uh, corrected. I said, okay, you know, I'm a, I'm a reasonable person. I can compromise. Let's, you know, let's see how this will be corrected um, during the meeting when this is actually uh, discussed on March 2nd. Now, in the meantime, um, I was sending out blasts to uh, the people in the community, asking them to support it and to call in and to send emails. Um, I contacted the uh, Southern California Armenian Democrats, or SCAD, uh, asking them to use their email list to send a blast so people can send emails and call in who live in Burbank, etc. And for those of you who are just tuning in, I am doing my Let's Get Blunt segment talking about local politics, talking about city of Burbank and uh, placating and pandering to political organizations and lobbying groups. And so I was doing a lot of legwork to make sure that this um, this passes and such, and I was waiting for the March 2nd meeting. So at the March 2nd meeting, um, of course, the agenda still erroneously notated the ANCA, and uh, n- not anyone except for Councilmember um, Schultz for like a second uh, mentioned anything about the resolution, my name, or anything like that being sort of you know, in, in that respect. And all Council Member Schultz said was uh, that he and I had had an initial conversation about this. And most people who were aware of this and were watching <laughs> didn't even realize he said that. They missed it. It was that sort of passive and such. So it was very clear to me that there was a lot of pandering going on from the city uh, to ANCA. And so when the time came for public comments and I dialed in, I happened to be um, uh, placed after, sometime after actually, the chair of the ANCA Burbank. And this gentleman's name is Sarkis Simonian. And so he shamelessly gives a speech and credits in a sort of a, a clever way, credits ANCA and himself uh, for having initiated this, this petition, which resulted in the resolution. So I thought, wow, it's, I mean, this is something that's, I have evidence on record. <laughs> how, could you, uh, how could you do that? And plus, uh, by the way, I received the copy of ANCA's petition, which was sent after mine, completely redundant, uh, and it was a few days after mine was sent. So it's, it's time-stamped. <laughs> but anyways, I mean, people lie, you know. It's like Trump. What are you going to do? So uh, when it was my time to speak, first thing I did was, after thanking the council, I said, uh, I'd like to correct Mr. Simonian for, um, for uh, claiming that ANCA initiated this petition. So then I went on to really put a case about the uh, about the resolution and what it was important and such and and you know I, the the feedback from council was very um, was was very positive and it was actually better than I thought it was going to be and what happened was they wanted to see the final resolution written but they voted unanimously to to accept this and and to move forward and the final copy of it will be uh, discussed and approved, uh, I'm sure, uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks. So this is really about just really pandering to a political party and squashing when a citizen uh, is doing something. By the way, I had been 
uh, prepared, proactively, I wrote a press release and I sent an email to uh, the mayor uh, out of respect and said, uh, Mayor, I may be being premature, but I'd like to be prepared. Uh, can I have a quote from you about this resolution? Uh, and if this doesn't pass, then we'll obviously scrap the press release. Um, the mayor had forwarded my email to um, Simone McFarland, who is the assistant director of community development the city. So she replied back to me and said that they don't uh, give quotes prior to uh, a meeting or a resolution, and she'd be happy to do it after. I said, well, fair enough. You know, they, they, we don't know where it's going to go, so we'll wait. Now, this is another example of pandering. This is another example of treating people differently. So right after it passed, I sent an email to Simone McFarland, and I asked, and I said, you know, since this is passed, can I have a quote from the mayor? I never heard back. But when, uh, again, ANCA, <laughs> trying to sort of uh, rewrite their own history, uh, falsify, sent their own press release out, there was a quote from the mayor in their press release. So obviously, um, Simone gave them a, a quote. And you can't even say that it was because they got to her first, because they didn't. So why are they not, why are they treating a political organization and a lobbying organization uh, differently than the citizens. Now, I'm also a journalist, so I was also asking for a quote as a journalist, and yet Simone McFarland would ignore me, but yet ANCA uh, will get a quote and will get noted on the city agenda erroneously. And by the way, what Judy Wilkie told me obviously never happened at the meeting. The record was not uh, corrected. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, it was just... Uh, to get me off the phone and get me to stop um, rebuttaling her on email because she knew I had all the facts and proof and, and receipts. So it's very um, disheartening. Of course, ANCA's press release was complete fabrication and complete um, nonsense uh, with uh, very um, creative ways to take credit for the work I had done. Now, it's unfathomable that this happens and a local government is doing that. And someone, someone suggested that they did that because they have a relationship with ANCA. And I said, I don't know how much of a relationship they have because, um, because people, uh, people who are members of ANCA and ARF have in the past complained about lack of diversity and uh, anti-Armenian sentiment at City Hall, and the, but nothing seems to be done. Uh, in fact, I mean, look at the look at City Hall and look at the council and that diversity. I mean, you know, and the Armenians make up, I think, over 13,000. There are thir over 13,000 Armenians living in Burbank, and that's based on a very old census. That number is much, much higher, especially when you consider that uh, a lot of people of color don't don't take the census, don't do the census, or immigrants, I should say. So what kind of a relationship does ANCA have with Burbank when the, I keep hearing these complaints all the time and nothing is ever done? I think the relationship is that ANCA uh, applies for grants and other sources of you know, funding from city of Burbank, and they probably placate to that too and pander to that too. And uh, 
and and that's that and that makes a relationship i guess to some people's definition so i wanted to get blunt about that because i you know it's easy to criticize washington dc federal government and you know trump and whoever but we also have to keep uh, accountable our local representatives and our local governments and say <clears throat> that is not okay it is not okay for you to um uh, play favoritism, if you will, between a political party and its lobbying organization over <clears throat> an activist who's trying to do the right thing um, and trying to make change and not wait for someone else to do it. So as much as I'm very, very appreciative and grateful for the city of Burbank to have uh, voted on this unanimously, um, we do have to take note about this. And and make sure that these kinds of hypocrisies are notated. And by the way, even though after some discussion, if you will, uh, Council Member Schultz, Nick Schultz, gave me a quote that actually did credit me. Uh, I don't think it initially he wanted to do that. They credited me for initiating this and working on it, etc. The quote he'd given to ANCA after I, I read it on their press release uh, didn't have make any mention of me. So that was like the final pandering to ANCA, if you will, by Councilmember Schultz that I did not appreciate. Um, so uh, I know this was a long, let's get blunt, but the whole story needed to be told. You know, as I said, I have all the receipts, all the documents, um, so it's very important for me to be detailed and um, and give you the entire story. And that's that. So let's get blunt. Congresswoman Katie Porter represents California's 45th congressional district in Orange County. Before being elected to Congress, Congresswoman Porter spent nearly two decades taking on special interests that dominate American politics and drown out the voices of working families. As California's independent watchdog against the banks, she made sure the big banks that had cheated Orange County homeowners followed through on their promise to help affected families get back on their feet. As a consumer finance expert, Congresswoman Porter also helped Congress pass the original Credit Card Act in 2009, which enacted federal protections from abusive credit card fees. Congresswoman Porter was recently named the chair of the Committee on Natural Resources, Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, as well as member of the Oversight and Reform Committee. Good morning, Congresswoman Porter. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic today. How are you? I'm just fine. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, me too. And many, many, many people, trust me. <laughs> Before I was going to go right into some specific questions, but, you know, I just have to ask you this and modestly aside, I, I know you're modest, but why do you think you have such a rock star popularity? There's a real hunger, I think, among Americans to want to believe in government and in the people in government. So when you're in a hearing and you're actually asking a question and you're trying to get an answer, when you're actually doing the work of showing up and listening to your constituents, when you actually take on the fights you promised to take on, I think people would like to see that from their government officials. And I think that's true kind of across the ideological spectrum. Absolutely. It, it makes total sense. I mean, obviously, I kind of know the answer or knew the answer, but I just wanted your perspective because... You know, when I, this is the second time I've announced that you're going to be my guest and people just go bananas. <laughs> they just love you so much. And 
I was um, I was reading the, your interview in Vanity Fair, uh, which was a great perspective too. So I wanted to ask you, and you know, I know that probably you're probably blushing there, but um, I, I needed to know that from you because people really like to see their elected officials really just going all the way, and you're doing 150%, and uh, Americans are very receptive to that, as you said. I think the other thing, Vic, is that, you know, so many of us are just trying to, you know, get gas in the car, put food on the table, check up on our parents, raise our kids, you know, earn a living, that people want to know what's going on in government, but they don't have seven hours to watch cable news and decode a bunch of nonsense, mumbo jumbo, acronyms, and frankly, sometimes straight out BS. And so <laughs> when you can tell people, you know, this is why this matters, yeah, right? Here's what I'm going to do. Here's the facts. I think people really respond to that because they would like to be engaged. They know that in a democracy that they need to be engaged. But it's really about giving people information. It's about teaching. And so that's what I did before I came to Congress. I was a professor. And I, I really think about my job is to learn, whether it's from witnesses, from briefings, um, whether it's from listening to constituents, from issue advocates. It's to learn and then it's to share that knowledge back Absolutely. with the American people. Absolutely. And there's a lot of substance um, to that, too. And Orange County Register, which is more of a conservative publication, you know, very not surprising, but it's impressive that they called you the most legislatively productive representative, which I think is a great honor. So people are following you not not only because you have this dynamic, charismatic way of uh, connecting with the American people and getting things done and asking the questions and have a you have a sort of a no nonsense, blunt attitude per se but also because you do actually get the work done too with legislation and letters and, and uh, you know, you've been, uh, apparently you've been more productive <laughs> than most. One of the things that we focus on is understanding that the job is not just about legislation. Congress people are supposed to pass laws. They are supposed to make policy. But we also have, as I mentioned, this job of listening, this job of educating our constituents, and a role that I particularly love, this role of conducting oversight of government. If we pass a program, the question then is, does that program work? Are though, if we pass funding for something, is that funding making a difference like we wanted it to? And that oversight role, I think, is something that, again, we are trying to reach across a, different, a lot of kinds of different people with different perspectives, very polarized political environment right now. Everybody should be in favor of making sure that laws and taxpayer dollars do what they're intended to do. Absolutely. Well said. Which brings me to the next point, and it's sort of interesting that, interesting in, in a sad way that we still, to this day, have to fight for uh, families and kids and seniors. But you have an act, which is the Family Savings for Kids and Seniors Act, which, um, you know, you're working toward. And, you know, it's something that's going to make child care uh, and elder care more affordable. I'm just wondering where you're at with that and some of the highlights. Yeah, I'm a mom of three children um, and a single parent. 
And, you know, my oldest is now 15, but I have a lot of years of, of trying to find and pay for childcare. And I used to wonder, I was lucky that my employer offered what people commonly refer to as flexible spending accounts or a dependent care account that lets you set aside um, up to $5,000 pre-tax. And I was fortunate to be able to set aside that $5,000. But I would always wonder, who in Washington, D.C., thinks that the cost of childcare is $5,000. And it doesn't matter if you have two kids or three kids, the number doesn't go up. So when I finally got to Congress and I I talked with some of the first ideas that I brought to my legislative team, um, I got my answer to who thought that was enough. Ronald Reagan, because that five, this is a program that was developed under President Reagan and that $5,000 has not been adjusted for inflation since 1986. So what my bill, the Family Savings for Kids and Seniors Act, would do is it would bring that amount up. um, It would more than double that amount to over $11,000 that you could set aside tax-free to pay for kid care or senior care, and it would index it to inflation going forward. Wow. Yeah. And it's common sense, which is why I have a terrific Republican colleague on this bill. It's been bipartisan since I introduced it last Congress, um, Jamie Herrera Butler from Washington State, who's also a mom of three. Right. That's um, I didn't know that part that it's back from the 80s, that amount. And of course, uh, Ronald Reagan, I'm not surprised there. You've also done a lot of work with with COVID-19, trying to get aid for for Americans and your district and such. And you're also trying to uh, remove a single parent penalty from the COVID relief bill. One of the really exciting things that we're doing is really recognizing that the pandemic fell unequally on people with different kinds of families, different kinds of jobs, different kinds of health problems, different kinds of housing. Big part of this is that people who are parenting this has been a very difficult period. Increased costs of childcare, childcare centers closing down, um, you know, daycare programs, after school programs shuttering, and then parents having to continue to work from home while taking care of their kids. And so Congress has a you know, bipartisan initiative, strong support across the ideological spectrum to give people who are raising kids more help by expanding the child tax credit. And so the amount would go up. It would be $3,000 for a young child, $3,600 for an older child. And this would help people pay for childcare. The problem is the way the bill's been designed, the way the proposal stands right now, single parents will receive less of that child tax credit and be less likely to receive any money at all for no reason other than the fact that they're not married. So I call this the single parent penalty. And it makes no sense. There is no discount when you go to purchase food for a hungry teenage boy or child care for a baby daughter because you're a single parent. This is a child tax credit. Every child, regardless of the fam- their parents' marriage status or family status, ought to be able to receive the money. Makes so much sense and, and makes me think, what was happening before you? <laughs> I mean, well, I, you know, it's interesting. I talked to the staff about this um, on the on the committees of, that work on these tax issues, and they explained that historically, um, the treatment for single parents has actually been even less favorable than it is in this proposal. Um, but I'm not backing down. This doesn't make sense. The point of this money is to give help in meeting the expenses of kids, and we ought to design the program to do exactly that. 
Yeah, and so many people are thankful for that. Uh, you spoke about oversight earlier, and you were just recently named the chair of the Committee on Natural Resources Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. For uh, for those who don't know what, what this committee does, can you explain, please? Absolutely. So natural resources generally is in charge of thinking about public lands and national parks, uh, water, wildlife, oceans, um, uh, energies and mineral energy and minerals that are in our ground, um, indigenous people. So it's got a broad jurisdiction. A lot of it is over um, oversight authority over the Department of Interior. Um, And so part of this is really about making sure that these public lands are benefiting the public. So if we are going to allow drilling on these lands, one, we have to make sure the public will be helped and not harmed, that the drilling isn't going to create a major environmental problem. But we also have to get a fair price when we sell those leases, not a giveaway to big oil. We have to make sure that that money is being reinvested in conservation and in clean energy. You know, our national parks are a wonderful, wonderful treasure, but it is increasingly expensive to go visit them and and people can't all enjoy those national treasures. So this is an opportunity to hold big oil and polluters accountable um, and an opportunity to make sure that the American people are benefiting from our amazing natural resources. Yeah, absolutely. It makes total sense. I already sort of had all my questions for today and then I was scrolling through social media today, and I saw there was an outreach to multiple members of Congress, including you, uh, about something that didn't really happen with the previous uh, administration and uh, the President Biden's administration is being encouraged to do something about the war that ended in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and to get uh, President Biden and Secretary uh, Blinken to do some sort of intervention or sanctions against Turkey and Azerbaijan for what they carried out. I'm just wondering what your feelings are about that. Yeah, I have a um, you know a, a, a really important sense here that it's important that we're leaders um, in human rights. The situation in um, in Turkey and in some of those territories, the historical and ongoing ethnic conflicts are really problematic. I think the most important thing is that under President Biden, we're going to have a strong and thoughtful strategy to be able to invest in diplomacy um, and to invest in tools to help address some of these problems for too long. Um, you know, the Trump administration would actually create some of these problems um, and stir some of these things up. So I think we need to be talking about sanctions on Turkey um, if, if they're going to continue to engage in these kinds of abuses. Wow. See, that's the kind of leadership that I think people are starved for, especially after four years of uh, President Trump, of decided, you know, de- decisive and firm leadership of just getting our reputation back in the international community which I think um, the Biden administration has done a really good job so far. I wonder what you think about that, their first 100 days, which they're still in. No, the wonderful thing about the Biden administration is that they're welcoming Americans, um, everyone from everyday folks um, to people who are elected officials like me into the process. That means sometimes we're going to cheer them on. Um, I'm really excited about President Biden's recognition that child care and that caregiving workforce are part of infrastructure. They're part of how our um, workforce is going to be globally competitive. It's also our job, and I think President Biden welcomes this, to tell him 
him, we want you to go a different direction. We want you to do more. We want to push you forward on, on issues like climate, for example. So the important thing, I think, is that we have a president who's willing and actually wants to have a dialogue. He's willing to learn. He's honest. His staff are thoughtful and, and qualified for the jobs that they're doing. And that makes the real debate about what is the best way forward possible. Absolutely. From your vantage point, what are we what are we missing? What am I missing and not talking about or asking you today? What's important? Well, I think one I... of the one of the things that we should be focusing on is what's next in terms of helping people with housing. What I hear right now is a lot of focus on getting schools open and on what this pandemic has meant for parents, for women in the workforce. That's wonderful. I started worrying about schools being closed the day my kids' schools closed. I've been worried about it for almost a year now. So I'm glad that, that policymakers are catching up and are starting to talk about this. Right. But we have a real crisis coming with regard to housing. We've had moratoriums to prevent evictions um, and to prevent foreclosures. But that, that rent, those mortgage payments, they're still owed. So we need to be thinking about what is the end game as we get out of this pandemic and people are and employment bounces back and people can pay their rent. What about all that back rent? What about those missed mortgage payments? And that's an area where I feel like I can add a lot to the conversation mm -hmm. because of my work here in California on the ground with now Vice President, then Attorney General Kamala Harris fighting to make sure that families had a fair opportunity to save their homes. If they had the ability to do so, they should have that chance. And so I think that's an area where looking ahead, um, we really need to be starting to have conversations and starting to think about what are going to be the right kinds of, of help to give people. Indeed. Uh, Congresswoman Porter, anything else you'd like to add, maybe perhaps a call to action or just speak directly to your district constituents? Um, no, just that we're really excited about continuing to advocate for the getting rid of the single parent penalty. We're using that hashtag, um, single parent penalty, on social media to to really educate people about you know how we can make sure this child tax credit helps every child. Fantastic, Congresswoman Porter. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, continue to uh, watch you and be inspired. Thank you. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Congresswoman Katie Porter, who is just so beloved and respected that she has a rock star status, and for good reason. Uh, this was my second time interviewing her, so I'm very grateful. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic uh, today, Congresswoman. Here are three quotes about politics, government, and lobbying. The first one is by Susie Kasem, and she said, You're not just for the right or the left, but for what's right over the wrong. The next one is by Bill Press. He said, Lobbying is the world's second oldest profession. And the last one is by Mark McKinnon. He said, I think that the press has a duty and an obligation to report on local government, state government, federal government, to be aggressive, to do its job. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. 
both Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.